welcome. I just want to add my welcomes to everyone this morning. The weather is beautiful outside. Um, I won't keep you too long so we can take advantage of it. But um, today we're going to continue looking um, in the book of Acts. Uh, We're we're picking up um, a little bit after where Gav left off a couple of weeks ago. We're going to be looking at some of the work of Paul and Barnabas today. And um, most of what we're going to look at is in chapter 15, but I just want to briefly start um, with a little bit in chapter 13. Um, So we're starting at the beginning of 13, just for a few verses. It says, Among the prophets and the teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manian, and Saul. One day these men were worshipping on the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit said, Appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work for which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. I just want to stop there because that's actually something really significant. While they were worshipping, they're there with their fellow believers, the Holy Spirit stopped them and said, I've got a really special task for Saul and Barnabas. I want you to set them aside. Clear their schedules. Cancel all appointments. This new task is priority number one. And then what it says in verse 3, where I really want to bring your attention, is that they did a little bit more fasting and prayer. But then they laid their hands on Saul and Barnabas and then sent them on their way. They covered them in prayer. They gathered around them, laid hands on them. But in addition, when Paul and... I'm sorry, Saul, he's not called Paul yet. But when Saul and Barnabas left on their mission, they knew that they were supported. They had a whole team of people behind them who, back at home, back at their home base, were still praying for them still supporting them, still offering them a place to come back and take rest. That's one of the most vital parts of any type of mission is the support behind the mission. And Saul and Barnabas could go with confidence knowing that they had a team of people listening to the Spirit, discerning, intercessing on their behalf back at home and who were upholding them in prayer. So the mission that the Spirit had for Saul and Barnabas was to continue spreading the word, continue spreading the gospel all through the different areas. So for the rest of chapter 13 and all of chapter 14, it outlines where um, Paul, who he's now called, in chapter 13 he starts being called Paul rather than Saul, is a little bit confusing. Um, So Paul and Barnabas, um, where they went, so they went through Cyprus, Antioch Antioch of um, Poseidon, Iconium, Lystra and Deborah. Sorry, Derba. These are all areas throughout Turkey. So basically, Paul and Barnabas are doing a bit of a roadshow, doing a bit of a roadshow around Turkey. Spreading the word. Spreading the word to the Gentiles, which is what the Holy Spirit had tasked them to do. They ended up in Antioch of Syria, which is one of the major cities um, in south-central Turkey of the time. And this is where we pick up our story in chapter 15. So the words should be on the screen for you. Um, I'm actually going to be reading from the New Living Translation, so they may be slightly different. Um, I do apologise for that, but those words are the NIV, and I'm going to be reading the NLT. So they say the same, but slightly different. So while Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers, unless you are circumcised, required by the laws of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some of the local believers, to talk to the apostles and the elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way, 
in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them much to everyone's joy that the Gentiles too were being converted. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and the elders. They reported everything that God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted that the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the laws of Moses. Let's just take a pause. See, up until now, all through Scripture, God's plan largely revolved around the Jewish people. Up until now, salvation and redemption had really been set aside for them. But what we see through the book of Acts is a major shift in this policy. You see, all of a sudden, the good news of salvation is available to everyone. It doesn't matter where they're born. It doesn't matter what they've done. Everyone now has access to God. Everyone has access to the salvation and redemption that's been held aside for the Jewish people for all of this time. Now, really, that sounds quite simple, doesn't it? What was theirs is now everyone's. It's really quite a simple concept. But to the early church, this was massive. This was a massive, massive shift and a massive challenge. It certainly is more inclusive. It ticks the equal opportunity box. But it's all a little bit too modern. You see, the Jewish people, they had to follow a really, really strict way of living. There was all of these rituals, rules. At the foundation of this was the practice of circumcision. It's one one of the things that set the Jewish people apart from the rest of the world. These were at the very foundation of their lives and had been so for generations and generations and generations. This was life. This is what they were raised in. This is all they knew. So all of a sudden, having God's salvation opened up to everybody was a really major challenge for these people because they had to figure out a way of how they could assimilate these outsiders into their own community without compromising any of those traditions and rituals and beliefs. But the problem is they couldn't agree on how to do it. There were lots of the Jewish people who felt that the old ways those traditional ways they had to be adhered to because they were following the laws of Moses that's what they'd been commanded to do and that's how it had been if it ain't broke don't fix it but understandably there's a lot of these newer people who are coming in going I don't know if I want to get circumcised (laughs) I don't know if I want to stop eating all of that really, really delicious food that you guys aren't allowed to eat. You know, so things like shellfish. Jewish people weren't allowed to eat shellfish. Jewish people weren't allowed to eat any web-footed birds or their eggs, like duck or anything like that. They weren't allowed to eat anything relating to pork. Imagine if they'd gotten their way back then, what that looks like for us today. No more bacon and eggs. No more pork crackling. No more duck a l'orange for the fancy ones. But I think one of the most tragic ones is no more barbecue pork ribs. (laughs) 
I know, no more rib night. Now, you see, the church was really struggling with these things. They had to determine whether these commands for the Mossianic rules were still to be followed, whether they were still valid. What was a command for all people? Or what was a command for just some of the people? What was a command that was just for a limited time? You know, just for a season, something that worked or was necessary for a while, but now it's no longer. These are the questions that they were battling with. And they had no guidance, really. It was all just open argument. I can picture, like, some of these would have been more than just heated discussions. You know, I can kind of picture these kind of devolving into, like, an early church version of a pub brawl. You know, these, these were really passionate, deep-seated traditions and beliefs that they had and all of a sudden people are coming along and challenging those so in order to figure it out what they did was well you know we need to call in the big guns here you know we need to call in the third umpire to see if this is out or not so what they did is they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem they sent a few of the elders and and leaders of their church with them sent them back to talk to the apostles and the and the elders and said here's our problem you give us the answer and, and we'll do it. You, you guys figure it out. So we pick it up again. So the apostles and the elders melt, met together to resolve the issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood and addressed them. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus. Everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. When they had finished, James stood and said, Brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversation, sorry, and this conversion of Gentiles is exactly what the prophets had predicted as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles. All those people I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken. He who has made these things known so long ago. And so here he hands down his verdict now. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them and tell them to abstain from eating foods offered to idols from sexual immorality and from eating the meat of strangled animals and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. So they decided it's not going to be fair to lay all of those rules on the new converts. Peter showed in in verses 8 to 10 the grace of the cross, the gift of the Spirit, through those things there's no more for the purpose of redemption there's no more Jew or Gentile there's no more you or me there's we it's communal 
everyone has access. And he's saying, why should we force these antiquated, restrictive ways on people when the cross took the need for that away? He's saying, we've been raised our whole lives this way and we can't even get it right. How can we expect these people who know nothing about our traditions, who know nothing about the ways we've been raised, how can we expect them to just walk in and just do it when we can't even do it? It's just not realistic. It's not possible. And the act of the cross took away the need for that because God offers that redemption, that grace and that salvation. Verse 22. Then the apostles and the elders together with the whole church in Jerusalem chose delegates. They sent them to Antioch of Syria with Paul and Barnabas to report on the decision. The men chosen were two of the church leaders, Judas, also called Basabbas, and Silas. And this is the letter that they took with them. This letter is from the apostles and elders, your brothers in Jerusalem. It's written to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We understand that some men from here have troubled you and upset you about their teaching, but we did not send them. So we have decided, having come to complete agreement, to send you official representatives, along with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are sending Judas and Silas to confirm that we have decided concerning your question. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay down no greater burden on you than these few requirements. You must abstain from eating food offered to idols, from consuming blood or the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. If you do this, you will do well. Farewell. Short and sharp. The messages went at once into Antioch. They, were called, they called a general meeting of all the believers and they delivered the letter. There was great joy throughout the church that day as they read this encouraging message. And then Judas and Silas, both being prophets, spoke at length to the believers, encouraging and strengthening their faith. They stayed a while for the believers sent them, before the believers sent them back to the church in Jerusalem with a blessing of peace. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch. They and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord there. So they've written down their letter, they've distributed it throughout the church. I've been thinking about this passage, passage for um, a few weeks now, trying to figure out and, and hear what it's saying to me and saying to us. And What I've found is that there's a really significant challenge here. You see, through the cross, God took things to the next level. He made his salvation available to all people, not just the Jews, but to everyone. And it became really quite simple. All it required was belief and acceptance of the gift. You see, I'm going to go off on a tangent here. This is the thing about Christianity. We complicate this so much. It's not a difficult concept. Jesus died on the cross for the salvation of our sins. He gave it freely. We don't deserve it, but he gave it anyway because God loves us that much. All we need to do is believe that and accept it. That's it. That's the gospel message. But we have to complicate everything. 
we have to go into all of this theological debate and we have to pull everything apart. That's not what it says in the original Greek. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it means. Oh, we translated that incorrectly. But that's the message. All of the other stuff is just white noise. It's just distraction. That's what we've been told to share with the world. God loves you. He sent his son to take the penalty, to take the punishment for all of the stuff that you've done wrong. For every single time you've walked away from him, Jesus paid for that. That's it. But we have to make it so complicated. Sorry, I'll get back to it now. (laughs) It just annoys me. It really, really gets to me. Where am I? (laughs) It's It's almost like, you know, we can't believe that something so profound and something so wonderful and something so just awesome is really that simple and it's free. It's, just, it's something like in our brains just can't compute that and we have to be sceptical and we have to go, nah, there's, there's got to be more to it than that. You know, it's got to cost something. There's got to be strings attached, you know. It's like that thing you, you view online and then all of a sudden you're getting all of this spam email in your inbox because you looked at something, you know. But it's not. It's really just that simple. So the Jewish people have had to live this really complicated schedule of life. They've had to do all of these things and adhere to all of these rules. And then along comes Jesus and says, you don't need to do that stuff anymore because this is why. I've done this for you. I'm taking away the need for all that. But even though it's not an exclusive club anymore and everyone's got admission... This was their way of life. This has been ingrained into the Jewish people for so long. It's what they've done. It's all they've known. And then all of a sudden, these people are coming along saying, you know what, you don't need that anymore. All of these people, they're going to get what you've had to work so hard for. And they're going to get that for free, really, just for believing in something. So it's a really difficult thing for the Jewish people to to move on from and to let go of. God was moving in such a huge way and he was taking things to the next level but some of those people just couldn't get out of the way and let it happen. They couldn't just move on. See, they wanted to put God back in the box that they'd been raised knowing where he was because that's what they'd been raised to know. Effectively, you know, this is what God was. God was in the temple. That's where he resided. And you had to do all of these things and adhere to all of these rules and live a, quite, a, quite a strict life in order to have that relationship with God, to pay those debts. So they wanted to keep him in that because that was known. Yeah, it was super, super hard and almost no one could actually live up to the requirements but it was what was known and we're always afraid of what we don't know the unknown is something that's really scary and so this this jesus guy came along and changed all of that and then the prophets all of those who were following him all the apostles all the teachers now was were presenting this new message and it was just really scary for them so that all got me thinking a little bit How often in our own lives do we hold on to things? We 
we figure out this system of doing something or this way of doing it. It might be because we did it this way first and it worked really well. And so we think, well, that's the way it has to be done because any other way is just not going to work. Or it might be that that's what we've been raised to do. Well, you know, it worked for my parents and it worked for their parents and it worked for their parents, you know, or in church, you know, this is how we did it when I was growing up in church and it worked really well then. But then someone comes along and they challenge that. And they challenge our system and they tell us, well, you know what, maybe there's actually an easier way of doing it or a more efficient way of doing it. Or do you know what, that way is just not working anymore. We need to change. We need to try something new. I don't know about you, but when someone comes along and challenges one of my really held on to things, I get really defensive. Sometimes I might get a little bit aggressive. Start thinking up some choice words that I could use to describe their new way of doing things. We, we, we hang on to these things. And it's not really any different in church. We do things the same way sometimes that we've been doing them for hundreds of years. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm, I'm, I don't want to. I don't want to knock tradition. I don't want to knock ritual because some of them are extremely powerful and some of them are extremely meaningful and super, super valuable. But doing things the same way for the sake of doing things the same way can sometimes cause a roadblock. So there's three big ideas, really, that I want to present as a challenge to everyone today. And these are three things that I've been really challenged with. And I'm hoping that maybe sharing them could, could help speak with you too. So they could be for you, they could be for us as a church, it could be whatever it needs to take. But I wanted to share these with you and, and see if any of them resonate. The first one is, what beliefs do I have that I've put God in a box in by thinking things only work a certain way? You know, how often do I think that I know better than God? How many times do I say something's not possible? Or how many times do I say that it's not going to happen? Because that's not how God works. That's not how God does things. I always think, whenever I think of this, in the very, very early days when Sarah and I were dating, we were driving around Marion Car Park, a shopping centre car park. We had some friends in the car. And it was super, super, it might have been around Christmas time. So like, you know, Marion Shopping Centre car park at Christmas time, you know, if you can find a car park anywhere, it's a miracle. Um, so we're driving around and I remember driving going, please, Lord, give me a good car park. You know, and I kind of said it flippantly at the time as a bit of a joke. But then one of, one of our friends in the back of the car said, I think God's got more important things to worry about than giving you a good car park. And, and we've had a number of discussions about this over the years of going... But you know what? In that moment, I had a need. <laughs> I didn't want to park three streets away to go do my Christmas shopping. But who am I to say that if I ask for a car park, God's going to say, stupid. i got more important things to worry about than giving you a car park. Who am I to say that? We did find a car park. <laughs> I choose to believe that God answered my prayer in the way I wanted him to answer it. But it's, it's, it was quite an interesting discussion for us for quite some time of going, is there, 
too trivial a prayer for God. I don't believe there is. I don't believe there is any prayer too big. I don't believe there's any prayer too small. He might look at me and go, I'm not giving you a good park, a car park. That's ridiculous. But it doesn't mean I can't pray it. It doesn't mean I can't ask him. He's going to answer the prayer. It just might not be the answer I want. But how many times do we put God in a box? How many times do we say, that's not what he does? That's not how he works. Or how often do we think that just because God did something once or did something a certain way once, he's always going to do it that way? How often do we hold on to these ways and put God in a box? The second one, what beliefs do I hold on to that have worked before but they're not working now? The ones that, you know what, they, they, were, they were great at the time and then they, they were there and I've, I've, hold, I've held on to that now and I've thought that's just the way it has to happen. It's the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But sometimes things are broken but we're so held on to that we can't see that it's actually broken. When I had my first um, position as a youth pastor in my church in um, Queensland, one of the elders there used to be the youth leader in that church, like, I don't know, a million years ago because he was really old. Um, (laughs) But he used to be the youth leader there and he grew up in the era of youth group where every youth group you had a fire and brimstone turn or burn message that you presented to the kids you know and that was how you did youth you'd play some games and then you'd sit them down and you'd say you're evil you've done heaps of wrong stuff and if you don't change your ways right now you're going to hell you know it was that kind of that kind of message and that's the era that he grew up in it was the billy graham era type you know and there's nothing and, and Queensland Bible Belt, yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. There's, there's nothing, like, maybe not the words I've used to describe it, but there's nothing wrong with that type of approach in, in preaching. And back in that era, it worked. That's what people were using, and, and that's how God was moving through the rally and revival time, uh, that movement. But in the context of where we were, that just wasn't going to fly. And when I came back to the church and, and God sort of called me into that ministry, he gave me a super clear vision and a super clear framework on how the youth ministry in that church was to be structured. They hadn't had a youth ministry there for about 18 months. So they had nothing. So effectively, we had a blank canvas to work with. There was no young people in the church anyway. So we were starting quite literally from scratch. I think there was one teenage child in the church. And she turned out to be like our little disciple and was quite incredible in the end. But God gave me this thing. And I went to the eldership of the church and I said, this is what I believe is meant to happen here. Um, And this is what God's laid on my heart. And this is how I believe it's meant to run. I'm willing to do this. Are you willing to jump on board and and we'll see where this takes us? And every one of them except that one elder was, was on board. And I was in that position for two years and he fought me every day of those two years on how, you know, it was supposed to be done because in his view, I wasn't doing it the way it was supposed to be done. And so I wasn't going to be effective in what I was doing and we weren't going to see anything happen and we weren't going to see God move. And you know what? In those two years, we had over 500 young people come through our doors. 
by the end of the two years, we had an average weekly attendance between 50 and 70, and we started with one. You know, so God moved, and he did things, and it was incredible. We were having, we were having all sorts of children walk through the doors of our church. We were having children who were involved in witchcraft. We were having children who were involved in drugs. We were having children who were living on the streets, walking through our doors, and just getting to spend some time with people who loved them. It was, it was really quite an incredible time. And even to this day, he still doesn't think that it was the right way to do it. Because he was so tightly held on to the way that things worked in, in his day when he was a leader. And you know, after we left, a couple of our leaders took over and maintained things. And then six months later, they moved away. And then this elder took over the youth group. And within three months, they closed the youth group program down because everyone stopped coming. Because he took it back to the way he thought it should be. How often do we hold on to those ways? That they were right for a season. But that season has passed. What do we need to let go of in order to move forward? What do we need to maybe let go of to go to the next level? And finally, what beliefs do I have about myself that don't match up with what God says about me? I've shared a few times as I've spoken, you know, parts of of my life story and, and things like that. And, you know, one of the big results of my childhood and teenage upraising was that I have a really, really warped view of my self-identity and my self-worth. And it's a daily struggle for me to realise that I have value. Um, In my workplace, I look around at all of these incredibly qualified and talented and knowledgeable people who have you know, done incredible things in, in my industry. And I sit at the table and I think, I have no right to be at this table. You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't fit here. And I have to remind myself every time that, you know what, I'm at this table because someone looked at me and saw the value that I can bring to that space and saw the value that I can bring just as I look at them and look at what they bring. But that's a conscious decision that I have to make every day to remind myself of that. I have this really deep, ingrained view of myself that is quite low. I have to tell myself every day that I'm wonderfully made and I am made the way that God intended me to be made. And it's like I know this. You know, my head knows it, but sometimes the heart doesn't believe it. And it's a struggle. And that's, you know, that's what I have to do each day. But I wonder how often do we feel, and it might not be about self-worth, it might be something completely different for you. But how often do you feel things about yourself or believe things about yourself? And it's just not right. It's just not the way God sees you. You know, you need to know today that you are wonderfully and fearfully made and you are worthy, you are loved and you are never alone. No matter what's happened, no matter what will happen, no matter what you think, no matter what you do, no matter how you choose to do things, 
Jesus still hung on the cross for you. And he did that willingly. And you don't do that for someone that's worthless. You don't do that for someone who has nothing good to contribute. You are wonderfully and fearfully made. And the ultimate price has been paid for you because you are so loved. So I wonder if any of those boxes have ticked anything for you. All of these things, one of them, there's, there's other things that I haven't talked about too, but they can all get in the way of us moving forward and going to the next level. It could be for us as individuals. It could be something for us as a church. What things have we got in the way? What things have we put in place in our own lives or in our church's life that are stopping God from taking things to the next level? Because the other part of it too is is if we're not careful, we can hold back those who are around us. We can use our own hang-ups and hold back those around us from wanting to move forward as well. And that can be a really dangerous thing. So we've got the kids who are about ready to come back. I just want to um, just want to finish in a prayer. And what I want to do, we're going to sing a song after this. But what I want to do, if um, if anything that we've talked about this morning has maybe I don't know triggered something or challenged you in some way, and you would like some prayer about that, either during our next song or at some point, maybe even during communion. If you want to maybe just either come down to the front or where you are, just ask those around you for some prayer. And if someone does that, I want you to socially, distancely, appropriately lay hands on them. (laughs) So just lay your hands out towards them. If it's someone who lives in the same household as you, that's fine, you can lay your hands on. But if someone asks for some prayer about something, just let's gather around each other. And let's lay our hands on each other and and pray for each other and just uplift, challenge, let's commission, send people out to move forward to the next step. So just pray with me now and then during our next song or during communion, if if you want to take something to the next level and have some prayer with each other, then I really encourage you to do that. Father God, we thank you so much that we are wonderfully and fearfully made. We thank you so much for everything that you have done that we don't deserve. Lord, we thank you for your, your love and your grace. We thank you for the challenges of doing things differently. We thank you that you are an active and living God who we can't put in a box. Lord, we ask that you would just reveal yourself to us in our lives, in our church life, in our families. Lord, we ask that you would call us out on things that we need to let go of, things we need to get out of the way of. Lord, show us the way forward and show us how to remove those roadblocks and just get out of the way and let you do your thing. Lord, we open ourselves up to being used by you to achieve your purpose, your plans. Lord, we thank you so much that we get the privilege of being a part of a relationship with you. 
We ask, Lord, that every day you would be renewing our minds and renewing our hearts and just refreshing that knowledge that we are loved and that you have a plan for us and you just want so many great things for, for your children. In Jesus' name, amen.